Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So as you'll notice on the hymn boards, today is Septuagesima Sunday, Septuagesima, which is the beginning of our traditional pre-Lent season. So if your background is from um, Roman Catholic circles or Anglican or Episcopal circles, whose liturgies came after Vatican II, so after about the uh, 1960s, 1970s, you may be scratching your head at these Gesima Sundays. Um, Folks are pretty familiar with Lent. Everybody knows about Lent. It's in stock photos of just about any denomination these days. But this pre-Lent season, what on earth is that? Well, from before the early Middle Ages until the latter half of the 20th century, all the liturgical churches of the West had this three-week pre-Lent season, and its removal from most of the modern calendars was indeed uh, part of that liturgical um, liturgical movement, those revisions, those, those reforms that happened um, through the 19th and 20th centuries that, that culminates with Vatican II. Even if you're not Roman Catholic, Vatican II affected you uh, if you are a Western Christian. So about these pre-Lent seasons, for those of us that are holding to kind of the older calendar, the older prayer books, According to the Oxford father, John Henry Blunt, in his commentary on the prayer book, he tells us that we see these titles, Septuagesima, Sexagesima, and Quinquagesima, as early as the lectionaries that are attributed to St. Jerome from the 5th century. The Latin names for these Sundays correspond to the approximate number of days before Easter. So Septuagesima is a bit under 70 days before Easter. Sexagesima, a bit under 60 days before Easter. Quinquagesima is exactly 50 days before Easter. And then we have Lent itself. Now in English, the word Lent comes from an old English term for spring. But in Latin, the season is known as Quadragesima, which is a reference to the 40 days of Lent. Now, liturgical scholars aren't completely sure um, the exact reasons why we have this custom of pre-Lent, but we do know that the early church had a variety of ways that they counted the 40 days of Lent. So some folks would not fast on Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday, and so if they wanted to have all 40 days of fasting, they had to, they had to start the, their Lent pretty early. Other folks would fast on Saturdays, but not Sundays or Thursdays. And so they began Lent a little bit later than these guys, but earlier than some other folks. A third group would fast on, on um, Saturday and Thursday, but not Sunday. And so they would begin a little bit later than these other two guys. And then the fourth group would not fast on Sundays, but they just didn't have all 40 days of fasting. And um, they, were, they began the latest of all. And it seems that these pre-Lent Sundays are a bit of a holdover from that variety. So even though during the 6th century under the papacy of St. Gregory the Great, the Western calendar gets standardized, we still have these holdovers, it seems, from that previous variety. So what we have with this pre-Lent season is a transition of sorts between Epiphany Tide and Lent. We're not quite yet into the Lenten fast, but we do see a penitential tone to these next three Sundays. We see this in the change from green to violet as a liturgical color. 
Um, we see this in the widespread omission of the Alleluia responses during the liturgy. So you'll notice we did not sing an Alleluia. We sang a tract. And at the end, when, um, during the dismissal, um, you're, you're not going to respond with, thanks be to God, Alleluia, Alleluia. You'll omit those Alleluias. Now, probably some of y'all are going to forget that. That always happens. But these three weeks end up being kind of a practice as we move towards Lent. Uh, during the uh, service, we're not going to be singing the Gloria in excelsis. We're going to be omitting the Gloria in excelsis from communion. And uh, during Matins, you're going to notice that we're not really singing the Te Deum anymore. That's a, that's a pretty typical custom. Now, these things aren't specified in the rubrics, but those are the widespread custom. Most especially, however, if you look at the collects, the, the, the weekly prayer that sums up the theme of the week in your prayer book, they very much have a Lenten sort of feel to them. And so, for example, today's collect, which is on page 118 in your prayer book, we prayed this. O Lord, we beseech thee favorably to hear the prayers of thy people, that we who are justly punished for our offenses may mercifully be delivered by thy goodness for the glory of thy name. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, ever one God, world without end. Amen. So here we find two key elements to repentance. Number one, we have the acknowledgement of our sin and the fact that we deserve to be punished because of our sins. And the number two, we have trust in God's goodness and mercy to deliver us from our sin. Sometimes these older forms of the prayer book uh, get criticized for being overly focused on our sin, overly penitential. Isn't that focus on sin too negative? Um, what about God's mercy, some might say? Well, the classical prayer book, the classical liturgical tradition recognizes that we won't truly understand God's mercy and goodness if we don't understand our sin to see how truly amazingly good God is, we have to understand that we don't deserve his mercy. We have nothing to bring to the table but what God already gave us. As we often say at the offering, all things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. So even any goodness or righteousness we have is a gift from God, and it only comes about through Christ's perfect goodness and perfect righteousness. We deserve death and hell, but God has chosen to give us his mercy instead. Our gospel passage from St. Matthew 20 illustrates this theme quite well. So this is the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. We see the householder hiring workers for the vineyard at the beginning of the day, at mid-morning, at midday, in the afternoon, and then finally at the end of the day. And in his generosity... He gave those who came later the same full day's wage. In the prayer book, it, uh, it says that he gave them a penny. The Greek there is a denarius, which is the standard full day's wage for a laborer. The work in his vineyard was so important to the householder that he dished out the payment with extravagant grace. This is not what we would consider good business sense. You don't pay someone a whole day for an hour's worth of work, right? Anybody that owns a business knows you don't do that. And it's really not even fair. But the gospel is like that. 
God's grace is extravagant, and it doesn't make sense from a human perspective. And really, it's not fair. If you want fairness, you go to Hinduism or Buddhism for karma. Karma is perfectly fair. Everyone gets what they deserve with karma. But in the gospel, the gospel is not like that at all. In the gospel, God's grace lavishes upon us his goodness, and it's goodness that we do not deserve. This wonderful unfairness is, of course, the problem in the eyes of the early workers in our, prayer, in our parable. Even though they had agreed to work for the denarius, for that standard day's wage, they figured they deserved even more since the householder was being generous. Do you see the problem with that thinking? Deserve and generosity. Those are two terms don't go together. You, nobody ever deserves generosity. So what's the master's response to their grumbling? Let's look at verse 13. Um, In your prayer book, again, this is page uh, 118, 119. In your pew Bibles, page uh, 775, 774 rather, 774. But he replied to them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me my generosity? This last bit about begrudging the master's generosity is more literally translated in the prayer book in the King James, where the question is, um, is thine eye evil because I'm good? That's the Greek idiom there, the evil eye. In the New Testament, the evil eye is not kind of a a, a voodoo curse, the way we kind of think about it popularly in kind of the American idiom. But rather, the evil eye in the New Testament is a metaphor for covetousness and greed. When we covet, our perspective is perverted and our eye becomes evil. We're unable to see God's goodness because we're so focused on what we think we deserve. We're unable to see the blessings all around us because we're so focused on what our flesh wants. One of the most dangerous things about covetousness and greed is that they're very, very sneaky. When your eye becomes evil, part of that evil is that you can't see the wickedness. Folks can't tell when they've become greedy or covetousness. One of the missionaries we support, Father Jerry, uh, told, told, told us in a, in, a, in a sermon in another, uh, another parish that in 30 years of ministry, he never had someone that he could recall coming to confession because they were greedy. The nature of greed is that you don't realize it's there. And, and regarding covetousness, how easy it is to get caught spending hours uh, surfing the internet, reading reviews, looking at pictures for that one last thing that you've convinced yourself you need to be truly happy. I do that all the time. <laughs> as great of a tool as my iPad is for work and for, uh, and, 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 and for convenience, it also is an enabler, an enabler for my own covetousness. I'm reminded of the old VeggieTales episode where Madame Blueberry is introduced to the megastore Stuff Mart. Bob the tomato asks Larry the cucumber how much stuff he needs to be happy. And Larry replies, I don't know. How much stuff is there? Part of the reason we fast during Lent is to submit our flesh to godly discipline. 
the godly self-discipline. The fleshly desires that are behind most of our vices, which includes greed, they like to be in the driver's seat in our life. There's nothing wrong with having natural desires, but they should not be in the driver's seat. As Christians, we're called to walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. And one of those fruits of the spirit is self-control. Christian discipline ends up being a major theme of the scripture readings for these uh, next three Gessima Sundays. We see this in our, in our epistle reading quite clearly. This is 1 Corinthians 9.24, page 119 in the prayer book, and uh, page 900 in your pew Bible. St. Paul writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So like many preachers, St. Paul is giving us a sports-themed sermon illustration. Uh, I don't do that too much. I'm not, I'm not good enough at sports <laughs> to get a lot of the intricacies. And, and really what St. Paul is doing is he's giving us two sports illustrations, that of a runner and that of a fighter. Uh, Melville Scott, who's another one of the Oxford fathers who uh, did a commentary on a lot of these prayer book um, readings. Uh, Scott, Scott tells us, uh, he gives us two ways that the Christian life is like a race and then two ways that it's like a wrestling or boxing match. So it's like a race, he tells us, in that it looks forward to the prize. The prize drives us forward in our running. St. Paul said that, that we're not to be aimless, but we should always be heading toward the prize of eternal life. So that's going to put our priorities straight. That's going to keep our eyes on the Lord and on his promises. And then he says it's also like a race in that it demands continuous effort. Our race is a long one. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Our race lasts our whole life, in fact. We must persevere in the faith. We must be wise and steady, taking the long view and not settling for immediate gratification. And then the Christian life is also like a prize fight. We fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We pursue holiness and we combat evil. Chiefly, that's the evil that we see inside ourselves. That's where there's the big battle, is that evil that we find inside ourselves. The focus in this metaphor, then, is less on the length of the struggle, and it's more on the severity of it. So this is what Melville Scott writes. He says, the Christian must not, run, must not only run patiently, but fight desperately with strong and stern determination, with straining effort, with concentrated exertion, with wakeful and vigilant watching for opportunity. Let the spiritual wrestler learn his lesson from the bodily wrestler and not shrink from the stress of conflict, for no bodily wrestling with flesh and blood is like this wrestling for severity. So like a prize fighter, the Christian needs to be effective in landing his blows. This is not WWE where we're putting on a show. I had a friend who uh, used to fight back in the day in kind of the local version of that. And um, they would get hurt, but I mean, nobody was really throwing those real punches. They learn how to take the punch because they're putting on a show. You know, we're not shadow boxing in our Christian life. 
This is a true fight. Satan needs to be beaten off and sin needs to be bruised. Our enemy knows our weakness. And so we need to fight wisely. The Gessema Sundays are a good opportunity for self-examination so that we can see where that fight needs to take place in our own lives. We should use these weeks to prayerfully go before the Lord and before his word that the word's light may shine into the dark places of our souls so that we can then fight strategically come Lent. So by all means, let's partake of that traditional fast from certain foods during Lent. But more importantly, prayerfully examine yourself and your life to see what are those things that start the ball rolling towards sin. What are those, as St. Paul says, occasions of sin, opportunities of sin? Maybe they're not sinful in themselves, but they start the ball rolling. There are trigger towards sin. Fight strategically against sin in your life. Race for the prize. Be willing to run and train for that marathon. Now, it might seem that our gospel's focus on God's grace is a bit at odds with the idea of running for the prize. But remember that it's by God's grace that we get to run and fight at all. If you ever watch children, they run everywhere. They set up races for everything. And that's because running, as much as it's hard work, it's also a lot of fun once you get into it. Kids understand this. We adults, not so much because we get sedentary, right? (laughs) But as our bodies get used to movement again, the better we feel both physically and psychologically. The spiritual race is the same way. Christian discipline may sound difficult or uh, really terrible to our flesh, but the benefits do show the goodness of God in our lives. As our colleagues said, his mercy is for our deliverance and for his glory. And so may this upcoming Lent and pre-Lent see that goodness firsthand. And we say this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven.